We do not know the exact date uh, when William Shakespeare was born. Our first record of him is his christening on April 26, 1564 at Stratford-on-Avon in England. There is a certain appealing uh, symmetry in the speculation that he was born three days before his christening because that would mean that the day of his birth coincided with the day of his death exactly 52 years later on April 23rd, 1616. This month we find ourselves approaching the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, and in our time, significant Shakespearean anniversaries occasion major worldwide commemorations. In contrast, in the actual year of Shakespeare's death, his passing went largely unremarked by all but a few of his immediate contemporaries. There was no global mourning for the death of the Bard of Avon. No one proposed that he be interred at Westminster Abbey near Chaucer or near Spencer, and where his fellow playwright Francis Beaumont was buried in that same year. Shakespeare's passing was an entirely local English event, and even locally, it seems scarcely to have been noticed at the time. The initial lack of tribute to Shakespeare is partially due to more credit being given at that time to the actors who performed and brought life to the texts, as we'll see this morning, than to the playwrights who authored those words in the first place. There was also an important element of social status. His death did not merit the same tributes that might accrue to an actor or a playwright who was from a higher social class. Indeed, it was not until seven years after Shakespeare's death that his plays were collected together into what is known as the First Folio. And it was in the introduction to that anthology that the English literary critic Ben Jonson helped begin raising awareness about the lasting significance of Shakespeare's work in a way that would make it appropriate for a nobleman to acknowledge connections to a middle-class writer of popular plays. Indeed, consider this summary of Shakespeare's career. A young man from a small provincial town, a man without independent wealth, without powerful family connections, and without a university education, moves to London in the late 1580s, and in a remarkably short time, becomes the greatest playwright, not only of his age, but of all time. His work appealed to the learned and the unlettered, to the urban sophisticates and the provincial first-time theatergoers. He made his audiences laugh and cry. He turned politics into poetry. He recklessly mingled vulgar clowning and philosophical subtlety. He grafts with equal penetration the lives of kings and beggars. He seems at one moment to have studied law, at another theology, at another ancient history, while at the same time effortlessly miming the accent of common folk. Virtually all his rival playwrights found themselves on the straight road to starvation. Shakespeare, by contrast, made enough money to buy one of the best houses in his hometown to which he retired in his early 50s, a self-made man. 
Despite the lack of recognition in the years immediately following his passing, here on the 400th anniversary of his death, Shakespeare's plays have become widely recognized among the English language's greatest contribution to world literature. On the level of reading Dante's Divine Comedy in Italian, Goethe's Faust in German, In Search of Lost Time in French, or Tolstoy's War and Peace in Russian. But for those of us whose first language is English, Shakespeare is our best access point to world historical literature. For now, I'll close this introduction with this story from the author and activist Chris Hedges about one of his college professors who first opened his heart and mind to the Bard of Avon. He writes that this professor had open disdain for what is called new criticism, the evisceration of texts into sterile pieces of pedantry that fled the mysterious sacred forces that great writers struggle to articulate. He says, you had to love great writing before you attempted to analyze it. You had to be moved and inspired by it. You had to be captured by the human imagination. He once told me, Hedges writes, that he had just reread King Lear. And I, as this you know, eager undergraduate, recited a litany of freshly minted undergraduate criticism, talking about subplots, themes of blindness, and the nature of power. And he listened impassively. And well, he said, when I finished, he said, I don't know about any of that. I only know that King Lear and reading it made me a better person, and it's made me a better father. In that spirit, may we open our hearts and our minds to the beauty and power of one of Shakespeare's greatest plays, the tragedy of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. Shakespeare's plays were written over a period of approximately 25 years, from around 1589 to 1613. His true genius, though, was the diversity and the depth of his characters. Through Falstaff, Hamlet, Rosalind, Iago, Lear, Macbeth, Cleopatra, and so many others, Shakespeare is often working at the archetypal level of the collective unconscious. His genius can perhaps only be understood in the way that we stand in awe of a Mozart or a Michelangelo whose idiosyncratic gifts channeled a stream of paradigm-shifting creativity. Shakespeare wrote at an extraordinary pace, producing 27 plays in the decade from 1592 to 1602. But what is most stunning is not only that level of output, but also the quality. To consider a period of a little more than a year, from 1606 to 07, the mystery of Shakespeare is not the composition of three tragedies in 60 weeks, but that those three tragedies comprised Lear, Macbeth, and Antony and Cleopatra. But let us turn now from the great tragedies to the high comedies. In the midst of the winter of 1595 to 96, Shakespeare visualized an ideal summer. Probably on commission for a noble marriage where it was first played, the result is arguably his first masterpiece, A Midsummer Night's Dream. The term bibliolatry 
idolatry of the Bible has been coined for those whose obsession with the biblical text itself obscures their attention to the people, to the communities, to the experiences which inspired those scriptures in the first place. Worshiping the Bible or getting obsessed with it to the uh, distraction of ethics and others is an exercise in missing the point. In the Buddhist tradition, it's called the error of the finger pointing at the moon. If I'm to say, look at that moon, and you're like, I don't see it. And I'm like, stop looking at my finger and look where I'm pointing, right? So the, the Bible is ultimately something that is n- less intrinsically valuable than it is pointing beyond itself to the sacred to this way of being in the world. In contrast, there are those who would argue that bardolatry, the worship of Shakespeare, ought to be even more of a secular religion than it already is. Among contemporary adherents to the religion of Shakespeare, perhaps the chief disciple is Harold Bloom, that curmudgeonly Yale literary critic who writes that a substantial number of Americans who believe that they worship God actually worship three literary characters. The Yahweh of the J writer, the earliest author of Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers. The Jesus of the Gospel of Mark, sometimes called Mark's Jesus, and Allah of the Quran. Bloom continues, I do not suggest that we substitute the worship of Hamlet, but Hamlet is, in Bloom's seeing, the only secular rival to his greatest precursors in personality. Like them, he seems not to be just a literary or dramatic character, and his total effect upon the world's culture is incalculable. After Jesus, Hamlet is the most cited figure in the Western consciousness. No one prays to him, but no one evades him long either. Also, like the classics of the world's religions, Shakespeare is a classic in the sense that there neither was nor ever could be one definitive reading for all time. Rather, his works continue to produce meaningful rereadings, meaningful reinterpretations, both within lifetimes and from generation to generation. As T.S. Eliot playfully said, all we can hope for now is to be wrong about Shakespeare in a new way. (laughs) So with our hearts open to the possibility of new insights for our living today, here and now, let us turn to Shakespeare in love. In 2014, Emily St. John Mandel published her fourth novel, Station Eleven. Have any of you read it? It ended up on a few um, best-of-the-year lists. In the novel, a flu pandemic has killed most of the world's population, but in contrast to many post-apocalyptic dystopias such as The Walking Dead or others, Station Eleven spends almost no time on the impact of the disease or the immediate aftermath of rebuilding civilization. Instead, it skips ahead two decades to focus on a group of artists called the Traveling Symphony, who visit the small groups stationed around the land formerly known as the United States. To their surprise, the Traveling Symphony discovers over the years that the audiences in these small, far-flung villages were less interested in seeing performances of modern plays and almost universally preferred Shakespeare. 
In the words of one of the characters, people seem to want what was best of the old world. So moving from village to village, these itinerant artists bring live music and live theater to a world that has been without electricity for 20 years. The Traveling Symphony, this collection of petty jealousies, neuroses, and undiagnosed PTSD cases, and simmering resentments, they lived together, they traveled together, they rehearsed together, they performed together 365 days of the year, permanent company, permanent tour. What made it bearable were the friendships, of course, the camaraderie, the music, the Shakespeare, the moments of transcendent beauty and joy when it didn't matter who'd used the last rosin on their bow or who anyone had slept with, although someone had written, Sartre, hell is other people in pen inside one of the caravans, and someone else had scripted out other people and substituted flutes. <laughs> Surely the flute section had their own nominees for their personal hell. The Traveling Symphony's actual motto, which was written on the outside of the lead caravan, reads, Survival is insufficient. This group of actors and musicians had taken a stand against living in a world without art and without beauty, a world of mere survival. So because mere survival in this world is insufficient, let us turn to our final selection for this morning from the works of Shakespeare, The Tragedy of Macbeth. Thank you all so much. Can we show our appreciation for the Frederick Corral? The Shore Shakespeare Company. Doug Cox directing. Our pianist and soloist. Thank you all so much.